HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hi, this is Lisa Held, host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I record my show because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories about how your food is produced. At this critical moment in time, stories about how and what we eat are more important than ever. I am so honored to be a part of the HRN community of hosts telling those stories. Whether that means hearing from farmers about using soil health to sequester carbon, giving marginalized groups a voice in the industry, or just bringing people together over a good meal. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting The Farm Report in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm here with Matt Wadiak, the founder of Cook's Venture, a company that launched this spring with a mission built around regenerative agriculture. Matt is also the former co-founder and COO of Blue Apron. And also with us in the studio is Blake Evans, the vice president of Cook's Venture, who runs operations on the farm and is a farmer himself. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So um, I have so many questions about the company. I mean, I'm really excited to have you because this is so new, right? Like you just launched in March, I want to say. We did. However, I will say this. Uh, Blake is is the founder of Crystal Lake Farms, which was part of our acquisition and has been working on um, breeding these heritage and heirloom birds um, in, in this particular cross that we've put together for over, uh, I guess, a decade now. So yep. it kind of goes back a little further. We, we launched Cook's Venture and uh, put some 
the, really the company together, but um, the story really goes back to 1939. So, Blake, do you want to give us a little history about Crystal Lake Farms then? Yes. Um, I'll go back to the black and white days. My grandfather, uh, it's an interesting way to start, uh, started a company called Peterson Farms in 1939. Okay. And... Uh, was really into uh, genetics after buying and selling eggs and chicks to other farmers. He felt like he could do this himself a lot better. And so he developed uh, the what was known as the Peterson male. It was one of the world-leading um, male-line genetic birds uh, through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s. Um, that company had spawned into a broiler uh, production company. Okay. And um, so that's where my chicken background really came from, uh, growing up on the farm, uh, working with geneticists, learning about the importance of backgrounds of breeds and what they bring to the table. And uh, it was running my grandfather's company for uh, a number of years and sold it. It was a very much commodity mainstream broiler company, but I was always trying to figure out you know, this isn't quite right. We need to do, you know, something different. Interesting. And so that spawned Crystal Lake Farms, and we needed to build, you know, naturally a breed from the ground up uh, using uh, heritage genetics and uh, really change the entire process of poultry, breed feed, and living environment. And that's really Crystal Lake Farms. So pasture-raised, non-GMO project verified. And I think it's worth I think it's worth mentioning, too, for the folks out there who – are listening that when we talk about genetics sort of in the industry of uh, breeding these heritage and heirloom birds, we're not talking about genetically modifying anything. It's just really the term that we use for, for breeding animals. Right. Well, and mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to genetics. I think um, in some past episodes, we've gotten into it a little bit. Um, you know, there's sort of, I think people know that industrial chickens are confined. They know that they grow quickly, um, but they don't know that, that a lot of that is because they've been bred to be a certain way, right? They That's have exactly right. And, and also, you know, beyond the genetics, the, the things that are written on a, a package in a grocery store, like, you know, organic or free range, um, might still mean that that bird was literally living in the same house as a conventional bird and, and never went outside. And um, it doesn't necessarily imply that there was any uh, better livelihood whatsoever for that animal and the living conditions in which it lived in. And in fact, in the mainstream broiler business, and the uh, meat chickens are called broilers, in the mainstream broiler business, houses that are organic are often interchanged for just commodity standard chickens um, uh, just based on supply and demand. Right. You're saying in organic, like they could be organically certified. The chickens are given like a little bit of space. And actually the, there was a rule that was that was proposed to, to change that um, and it did not uh, end up going through. So it, we actually know that um, those chickens are generally not on pasture. Um, not not generally, but don't have to be. It's not it's not a, a stamp of. I would say almost never. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of those chickens have never been outdoors. <laughs> right. Well, and and going back to genetics. So when you say heritage, um, this is like a little bit of a, a tricky um, term because yeah. you know there's the livestock conservancy has a very specific definition for a heritage chicken. The, the genetics have to be from before nineteen fifty, I think. Um, yeah. What are the what are the genetics of the birds you're using? Good question. So uh, we have three lines, so it's a three-way crossbird, and um, we're really the only 
genetic breeding operation in the country other than uh, Cobb and Aviagen Hubbard, which are the two big multi-billion dollar companies. And our line is uh, goes back to the Transylvania Naked Neck for our male line genetics. What and, a name. Uh, yeah, it's wow. an incredible name. And that's a recognized uh, heritage bird in, okay. in the Delaware, which is also a recognized heritage bird. Um, that's crossed uh, on the female side with another proprietary bird, which is an heirloom bird that comes from uh, the the Blake family. Okay. <laughs> and so what is, what is special about this bird, the genetics of this specific chicken that you are using. Yeah, Blake, why don't you go into the talk about, you know, the curve there and, you know, there's a a very different way that Blake put it together, so he can probably detail that best. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the first things that we did was we, I sat down with our geneticist and we talked about this for literally months. Um, Poultry genetics are just so broken, and you really don't even know what breed it is anymore. So we felt like you had to wipe the table clean and just start from the beginning. So we talked about the important traits that we needed, a bigger, longer frame. So the bird has a great skeletal system, uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the things about the naked neck chicken is it was often referred to as a chicken that doesn't get sick. So mm. not being able to, you know, not ever wanting to have, to put anything on antibiotics, you want those traits there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so that was really uh, the beginning first breed selection that we did. And then uh, Delaware brings in a lot of uh, body confirmation. So you have to have that. You'd have to put meat on the bird. Otherwise, it's just not going to, you know, it's going to be scrawny and, <laughs> you know, it's not going to taste great. Right. And then we had one of the genetic lines that, uh, you know, my grandfather and I had, and that was the the third uh, cross of that. And so really trying to pull all of those uh, appropriate traits together through, you know, natural mating and then selection uh, from those breeds. Um, the naked neck also has about 30% fewer feathers. So in a hundred degree Arkansas day, it can tolerate about a 10 degree higher temperature, uh, than traditional chicken. And so from there, we really worked with the growth curve and push that out. And genetics companies typically select birds for the fastest growth and then do that throughout. We didn't want those birds. We wanted it to give a chance to um, their skeletal system to develop mm-hmm. fully so when they did put the meat on, they could handle it. They, didn't, they weren't just sitting around. And then also um, uh, organ development. You know, if your breasts grow so fast, you're really constricting your lung growth and your heart development and things of that nature. And so those are, we really just push that growth curve back until those things were developed. Got it. So those are some of the It's really the, the only line that that actually has that curve um, in the broiler industry. And it's fascinating. A good, a really kind of good analogy is that if you think about, you know, our birds at um, what would be where conventional broilers are harvested 42 days, right. our birds, we were just walking on the farm the other day and we had some 45 day birds perched eight feet up in a tree. And uh, that, that picture was actually in the, in the Chronicle yesterday. And, <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty incredible to see an animal that's living in an environment naturally that yeah. can grow a little bit slower and it's um, athletic. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, a skinny teenager and then you just flip that light switch and then it fills out and they become just really beautiful, robust birds. And what, what that turns into is something that um, from an eating quality is, is just a really uh, delicious eating quality um, line of, of, of breed. So, 
um, taking the best of the heritage traits along with something that has great flavor and, and, and juiciness and, um, you know, a, a more chickeny chicken, if you will, <laughs> that, that, that has a good life. Right. And, and, and that's, you know, that was the, uh, a 10 year project, you know, putting that mm-hmm. breed together and getting that cross right. So, so you've got the bird. Um, what does the actual system look like in terms of, um, raising them on pasture? Are you using like barns and letting them out every morning and rotating them? I would imagine at this scale, it's not like following them around with a wagon kind of situation. No, (laughs) not following around with a wagon. We're using the older style um, poultry houses that were curtain sidewalls and, um, uh, you know, natural air and sunlight are, are tremendously important. Um, these houses, uh, pretty much most of them are out of production. Mm. Um, so we enhance those. We uh, create large doors in the side. We let them out uh, first thing every morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to say it's like kids at recess. Yeah. You know, when you open the door, they're running out. Now I say it's almost like flushing the toilet bowl because, I mean, the things that we do and the things that we provide, the birds literally are lining up and running yeah. outside when you open the doors. And we do hay bales and herbs and uh, various things, um, tremendous amount of perch. Um, and then we do the, all those same things outside, too. So we try to give them the best natural environment that they're used to. And we, because uh, um, you want them to be outside. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll be posting, actually, to our YouTube channel uh, a video of uh, this is a little preview of our birds going out um and how we we manage that system next week and uh so if people want to tune in and actually see it in in person that'll that'll go live in the next few days here cool i mm. saw once i was on a, a farm it, it was eggs it wasn't broilers um but it was a, a vital farms uh pastures uh system and i saw that that process you know 7 a.m they open the doors and the chickens are like just flying out. And it reminded me of like rush hour in the subway, actually. <laughs> like, you know, when everybody's crowded around the door and the doors open and it's just like everyone just, yeah. just like falling over each other to get onto the platform. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and that's all breed related. If you do the same thing and you open the doors in the morning with a conventional breed, which again, like every single chicken that you buy in the grocery store more or less is a conventional breed, um, you know. Uh, they just won't go outside. They don't want to move, and they have a hard time even getting up and standing and going from the feed to the water, you know, which is about two feet apart. So, um, yeah, much less uh, do they have the uh, bone density or energy to walk up and go up, up a ramp and down a ramp. And actually, one of the things that we saw the other day, <laughs> the same day I saw the, the, the birds up in the uh, in the tree, we walked down one of our ravines, which are called hollers in Arkansas, and... Um, with the birds had actually walked all the way down the steep ravine. I could barely make it down there myself. <laughs> and the chickens had no problem running down there and running back up. And they were drinking from a little stream down in the ravine. And it's just like a surreal thing to see a, a breed that can actually accomplish that and, and feed people for, um, you know, what's uh, not only socioeconomically better for the farmer and, and, and for um, the environment and for the animals, but also affordable for our customers. Right. Um, two questions. One, um, we sort of glazed over this idea that we know that chickens that are organic are not necessarily getting out on pasture, but I did notice that you're not using the term organic. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because the feed isn't organic? Um, or is it the land you need time for the, you know, the three year window? Uh, yeah. Organic certification for USDA is solely, well, there's some, some regula- regulations on indoor housing conditions, very, very minimal, I'd say, but it's, uh, 
majority of it is feed related. Right. And a lot of that organic feed, quote unquote, is actually imported from overseas. There's a really great article in the Washington Post about how a lot of that is falsified at secondary ports and then brought in and it, it wouldn't pass a mass spectrometer test in a lot of cases. So I don't I don't really love the idea of that. My my whole um, basis of, of uh, uh, how we're thinking about growing food in, in our country should be regenerative. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes uh, farms that are regenerative or grow in organic systems might not be organic certified. And the biggest impact that we can make in terms of sequestering carbon um, and in adding uh, biological organic matter to the soil is uh, taking a farmer from a more conventional system and then converting them over to an organic system. Um, and during that transition, you see some of the largest sequestration of, of uh, uh, organic matter and soil and carbon. And that, that offset actually is, you know, drawing down uh, carbon from the atmosphere, storing it in the soil. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're eating a chicken, you're actually eating with that chicken eight and to quote brilliant Savarine, take me to your kitchen and I'll show you what you are. A chicken is the, is the same, is the same way you are what you eat. And we want to be, you know, growing birds and, and monogastric animals that are consuming regenerative feed. That's why we don't use the term organic. But, but what are, what is the actual feed that you're giving them in addition to what they're getting on pasture? So yeah, all, all monogastric animals, including people can't um, live off of just uh, celluloid material like right. grass alone. So it is a fallacy uh, that um, there's anything – you see this sometimes, grass-fed chicken. That does not exist in the world. You wouldn't so, want that. That's yeah, they need, they need to eat calories, carbohydrates, and, and, uh, and protein just like people. So that uh, food for monogastrics has to be crop, grown you know, as a crop. So um, whether it's uh, lupin or lentil or corn or soy or um, one of the many variants, some kind of wheat or uh, – you know, faro. There's a lot of different things that we're experimenting with uh, putting into our feed right. to create a better f- uh, feed system in conjunction with our mills and our partner farms that are growing feed for us. And the goal would be to marry up the organic systems of the crop rotation to the nutritional needs of the chicken. And right. then the chicken can supplement that with some forage outdoors. Right. Yeah. No, and that's why I'm pushing you on it because, you know, I want to talk more about the regenerative the overall regenerative mission. And, you know, it's, my mind goes to, you've got these chickens and they're on pasture and it's great. And then, you know, are you feeding them soy from row cropping, um, you know, systems in the Midwest that are then depleting soil? And so it's sort of like a... Yeah, I know. So we're only working with farms in transition. So farms that have have left conventional systems. So all non-GMO project verified feed that are doing at least a basic uh, legume and uh, carbohydrate rotation. So um, what we're foundationally trying to do is, you know, year one when a farmer enters transition, you want to make sure you get that cover crop and you cover the ground, start sequestering carbon via that, building better root systems, building better fungal sugars, eliminating synthetic inputs to that land to that land and then adding in additional crop rotations as years progress to really grow them into what would will be eventually a a organic certified farm if they choose to be so but you know giving farmers that ip and paying a premium for american non-gmo crops is is really really important for the health of what, what is actually our greatest natural resource and it's our soil so we have an 800 acre farm where we have 57 chicken houses but on that piece of property, we can affect tens of thousands of acres of, of land to regenerate it right. and, and, and conserve our soil. Right. 
actually conservancy isn't even enough. We had to really, we really rebuild. have to add that rebuild it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, that happens over time. And one of the missions of the company is while we're undergoing this process is to do um, annual soil samples and make um, uh, uh, agroecological um give agro- agroecological feedback to our partner farms so that they can um, help to do that. Because unfortunately, if you're a farmer in America today, probably most of your uh, information that you're getting in, uh, in terms of farm intellectual property is coming from a big seed company or a fertilizer company or a herbicide mm-hmm. company. And there isn't a, a large amount of information available to people for free. So that's a service that we provide to our, our crop farmers. Great. Um, We need to take a quick break. Um, We're going to get a quick word from a sponsor when we come back. More with Matt and Blake from Cook's Venture. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six-plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Matt Wadiak and Blake Evans from Cook's Venture. So we've been talking a lot about chickens. And to be honest, I have a million more questions (laughs) about chickens. Um, but I want to I want to talk more about sort of the overall company and mission because I know there's a lot more to it. Um, so first of all, just you know, we've been throwing around this term regenerative agriculture a little bit, and we talk a lot about it on the show. But um, just in case someone is not that familiar, and also because I think people use it differently, can you, Matt, kind of just give us a quick definition of how you how you define it in relation to the systems you're using at Cook's Venture? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And, and depending on the, the biological system of, of the animal and, and the kind of crops that you're growing, regenerative um, is, uh, can be different as, as a, a way to measure land and land usage. So, for, for example, in the ruminant system, um, Alan Savory from, from mm-hmm. Savory would say that, you know, you use uh, regenerative agriculture to manage cattle with controlled grazing to sequester carbon and pre- prevent desertification of land. In a cropping system that uh, we're utilizing for monogastric animals for poultry, um, we're uh, defining regenerative agriculture as agriculture which contributes biological matter, 
um, and improve soil health year over year that we can measure. And we have four pillars of that. Uh, the first one being soil health, which we me measure with various metrics. Uh, the second one is biodiversity. Um, so measuring biodiversity on farm, including things like native pollinators and um, different crop rotations. The third tenant that we um, think about with regenerative agriculture is integrated pest management. And the last one is energy use on farm. And energy use on farm is actually not what a lot of people think it is. The largest uh, uh, use of energy in farm is actually generally in conventional farms, ammonium nitrate fertilizer. So mm. eliminating the input from ammonium nitrate for fertilizer, which takes an enormous amount of natural gas to produce, is a, a, a very important part of uh, growing food regeneratively for, for animals. That's, yeah, that's, that's great. See, it's like you have this very specific way that you define it, and I, I'm, I'm glad that we put that out there. And part of it is... Um, Right now, you just have chickens, but from what I understand, um, Cook's Venture is going to be a diversified operation eventually. Is that right? That's right. And, and the reason why we started with chickens is because when you look at crops in America, 97% uh, of crops in America go towards um, ethanol, which is 40%, 19% towards cattle. And uh, the next biggest bucket after that is is actually 9% um, uh, of all corn in America, of America's biggest crop, goes towards feeding poultry. So it's our of the things that we should be um, growing crops for, it's the biggest bucket because cattle should be grazed on grass. They're the only animals that can digest celluloid material and can convert that into, into muscle mass. And um, obviously ethanol is produced at an energy loss, which I'm sure you guys have talked about. It takes 70% mm -hmm. more ethanol to produce a liter of ethanol than, than it can create. So... Uh, that's a, a major issue. And, yes. and, and chicken, the chicken industry really is, is ripe for change. It really needs it. And a consumer transparency in, in that industry, you know, from the crops all the way to the animals, needs a huge paradigm shift. So when will um, the other elements start to come into play? Like when do you see Cook's Venture branching out? Well, you know, I've, I've spent my, my career as a, a chef and a food, food entrepreneur um, working with uh, diversified farmers all over the country and um, have worked on a lot of farms myself. And, and um, we have really great uh, connections with folks who are growing incredible cattle and, and growing incredible um, uh, pigs and regenerative systems and also diversified vegetables and, and, and managing permaculture appropriately for vegetable uh, farming, which actually is interestingly only comprises 3% of American agriculture is all of the fruits, nuts, lettuces, and, and, and vegetables that mm. we, we grow as a nation. People don't often realize that it's such a small percentage. So we're going we're gonna to get to those things, but we really want to change the, uh, the way that people are thinking about poultry because that, that is really the most impactful and biggest uh, bucket that we can utilize to mitigate climate change and, and build a better food system. In terms of the other items, um, hopefully, you know, later this summer, we're going to launch some other items and okay. then eventually uh, towards the end of the year, we'll hopefully have a full list of SKUs. Got it. Okay. And so you started with this farm in Arkansas, 800 acre farm. Um, is it is the idea that everything is coming from that farm or is the bigger picture that there'll be a network of farms? So we're, we're working with a, a, a system of, of different growers in poultry and also other animals. It would be impossible to farm, for example, um, cattle on our poultry farm mm. and the, the kind of land that you utilize for different uh, plants and animals is obviously uh, nutritionally different and, and 
you know, you can only grow certain things on certain properties. So when we do work with uh, contract growers, we don't, what's really important is that we do not participate in the tournament system, which pits growers against each other and is used by mainstream poultry comp companies. In fact, we, we actually start our base pay for our growers who um, oftentimes uh, have been out of production for, you know, 10 or 15 years because they didn't want to pay the premiums for the quote unquote upgrades to their houses mm -hmm. um, that big chicken companies demand. Um, they can receive without that investment uh, almost double what they would make in the tournament system and in, in some cases even more than that. And all we're asking them to do is uh, enrich their houses through natural things like hay, uh, hanging fresh herbs every day, and then cutting big holes in the sides of the houses so the chickens can actually <laughs> go outside and, and right. help to regenerate that, that land naturally through nitrogen and uh, uh, you know, nat eating and excreting nitrogen right. and growing grass <laughs> and, and trees and shrubs and plants and stuff. So Right. Yeah. What actually, you know, this just occurred to me, Blake, in, in Arkansas, where the farm is, how, how rare is this kind of operation? Like, if farmers around you see what you're doing in terms of this style of letting the chickens out, um, how do people react? Is it really unique? Uh, that depends on who's reacting, I think. <laughs> um, you know, we opened up uh, a pasteurized you know, company in the middle of uh, confined chicken. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it's probably a is, little negative from, from those guys. Is it maybe, It's by Tyson, is that right? Tyson uh, yeah, Tyson's just, uh, yeah. their headquarters is really close, right? 30, 30 minutes down the okay. road. Um, but, you know, we get uh, outside farmers that come to us for all reasons. They, they didn't want to make the upgrades, couldn't afford to make the upgrades. They love the idea of the better animal husbandry, and then they would hear from other farmers that this is a much less stressful environment working with these birds. And and so I think, you know, from the perception like that, it's uh, really, really positive. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems is that if you're a, ch a chicken farmer in America – to get a placement of chickens, you have to work with one of the big chicken companies, and you have to work with the companies that also own the plant. And the the companies that own the plant manage oftentimes networks of hundreds and hundreds of uh, broiler farmers, and they're confined to those contracts for oftentimes decades. Right. So they can't get out from underneath them, and they can't process their birds independently um, because they can't get a placement of birds. Right. Hmm. Well, and that would be would that be a challenge for you to get people to switch? and grow for you because the co their contracts are so long. And Most of the folks who are working with us have contracts that have expired and mm. chose not to re-enter the industry and are recycling their housing for us. So it would be housing that would otherwise uh, go barren. And in this case, we can regenerate the houses and regenerate the land via giving them placements of better chickens. Interesting. Um, and what's the scale? How much chicken are you producing? So that's actually the, the great thing about it is we can produce up to 700,000 chickens a week um, in our plant, which allows for a better cost to consumer because we are actually a skilled operation that that's vertically integrated. And that may sound like You're a You're processing there too? We, well, we own a, a processing plant right over the border in okay. Jay, Oklahoma, which uh, was a plant that was built in 1962, and we've just undergone a huge renovation of to an air chill facility, and it's a state-of-the-art, hygienic with better husbandry, better management practices for the live birds, and uh, better welfare for the employees in the community. So we're part of the Oklahoma Quality Jobs Act, and um, 
we have a, a really strong social mission and commitment to the community to make sure that we're trying to do everything, you know, better. It's not, it doesn't start with really, or end with the chickens. It, you know, it, it begins with the farmers and it goes all the way through the supply chain to your employees. And you have to give uh, to your people what you would want for yourself. And um, that's a, a huge uh, part of our company and, and, uh, and social commitment. Right. And I mean, that 700,000 chickens a week, that's a lot. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually in mainstream. It would be considered a smaller plant. Right. I mean, it's still voluminous enough to, to offer some um, uh, scalability and, and a ver- better variable cost that we can pass on in savings to customers. But it's actually not a very big plant when compared to uh, the plant they just built, built down the street from us, which does, what, what 1.9 or 2 million, million birds chickens birds a week? A week. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's one, that's one of about 40 plants of that size in our country. Right. The whole industry is about 160, 170 million chickens a week. Yeah, 9 billion a year. 9 billion a year. Right. Well, and that makes me think about, you know, as you, I I think, you know, this company, you talk a lot about scalability and and making it not a tiny thing that's just for one person. You're trying to get into grocery stores, right, and get to masses. Um, As you scale up, how do you make sure that you don't fall into the same systems that those companies have fallen into, which is, you know, trying to make things more cost effective. So changing systems in order to keep those costs down and, you know, I I don't think scale is necessarily bad, but often in scaling up, things start to fall through the cracks and... You just can't allow that to happen, and and you know through scale you can offer better variable costs via um, optimized logistics. Um, uh, for example, by planning your land and crop rotations to uh, sync up with the chicken's natural need in, in terms of nutrients, you can grow crops more efficiently and regenerate land, and also uh, be more cost effective while paying farmers more. You can get more by harvesting a cover crop, for example, that is sequestering carbon in the soil and and uh, contributing calorically to the chicken. So there are ways to optimize off of um, input costs that go into raising birds that are also uh, economically friendly and agriculturally friendly. And that's the interesting thing about developing a company in, in, in the food space in this era is that we we have the ability to measure things and use technology like soil sensors and heat unit mapping and USDA APHIS data that comes from uh, satellite imagery and, and dates back you know decades to uh, predictively grow crops using really good science that's good science so like some of the systems that bigger companies have created um, are actually pretty good systems they're just utilized in the wrong way so if you use those for good instead of you know just the lowest possible cost and people are willing to pay a few cents more for their food farmers can actually make a living wage and you can eat better food and I'd say that in addition to the fact that share of wallet for the American consumer is going to increase in the coming years. And we're actually lagging compared to most of the, the world in terms of um, consumer uh, income percentage that goes towards spending on food. Right. So, uh, you know, the money is there to support a better food system. And, um, you know, for what it costs to buy a, a happy meal at McDonald's, you could eat pasture-raised chicken every single day if you're committed to make, being a part of that change. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot of other um, issues in terms of... Ac- I mean, not everyone has access to the chicken that you're 
rate, I mean, it's where it's sold right now at Fresh Direct, I think. And Fresh Direct, we just launched in San Francisco, and um, we're selling online nationwide in our pre-sale, which that will go live in July. So we'll uh, next month be shipping all over the country. Right. And um, you can go on the website on cooksventure.com and, and support the system. Right. Yeah. And and I get what, like I actually I completely agree with you on price and I and what I was getting at with the access thing is it's just you know so many people live places where there's no like they can't access this food and um, so I mean that's what's interesting about this conversation is kind of it's true and I think that you know as the um, consumer especially you know Generation Z and Generation Y. Uh, adapts to a changing environment in food retail, more and more people buy things from their, their smartphones than from, from stores. And, you know, it, it's uh, not going to be long before we have a, a completely different kind of e-commerce grocery system that, that's out there that will be a fourth or fifth generation e-commerce grocery system. And this started, you know, with, with Webvan in San Francisco in 1999 and, uh, you know, Peapod and Fresh Direct and, of course, uh, Blue Apron where I used to where I founded and, and, and used to work. And, um, you know, the grocery system of the future won't look anything like what it looks like today. Do you, you really think that everything's going to shift online, though? Like, I feel like a lot of those things for so long were that it felt like that. And, and do you really think that's the direction the trend is? I think that, um, you know, grocery stores are inherently not very efficient, unfortunately. And you think about what a grocery store is. It's really a giant warehouse that's meant to keep uh, uh, people warm and food cold. And they're very expensive from an overhead perspective to operate. Mm -hmm. And they're not always very convenient. So when you think about the carbon footprint of going to a grocery store, getting in your car, driving there yourself, putting one apple in a big plastic bag, and then, you know, um, driving that back home, I know some e-commerce has gotten some some flack in the past about packaging, but from an uh, actual uh, carbon emission standpoint and a greenhouse gas emission standpoint, uh, e-commerce beats grocery 10 times out of 10. So, you know, obviously we have a huge infrastructure of grocery in our country that's not going to disappear overnight, right. but I think those are going to really turn more into pick and ship facilities and and pick and pack facilities increasingly. I mean, we've seen the rise in demand of companies like, you know, my former company and Instacart and um, Good Eggs and all kinds of different uh, e-commerce companies that are um, uh, thriving. And, you know, obviously uh, you can go online and and buy food in all 50 states right now, which wasn't something that existed 10 years ago. So it's not going to decline. It will just continue to increase. What, where does uh, local food fit into that conversation? Local food is, is works fits great into that uh, uh, that strategy moving forward as um, we disaggregate these huge hubs that feed uh, highly inefficient retail operations. You can build smaller hubs that can support farmers more efficiently, and small and medium sized farms will then have an opportunity to direct sell into. Uh, pick and pack centers that can go out directly to consumers and consumers can then take days of shelf life off their food and, and eat more interesting and, and more diverse cultivars of foods. All right. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are running out of time. <laughs> um, but um, I, I guess I just want to, I feel, feel like we should have like a conclusion question, which um, I guess just tell me what you want people to know about like next steps because right now, you know, we talked a lot about chicken. We talked about your big mission. Like what, where is Cook's Venture going in the next 
year? What we really want to focus on building on a very high level is uh, building better farm IP that can help to sequester carbon, regenerate soil naturally, and create a, a new food system that is agriculturally more sound, that supports healthier nutrition for our land, protects our greatest natural resource, our soil, and also gives customers a choice to uh, shop in, in one place to buy everything f- from a, a measured and known source that we know supports a better agricultural community. What do you mean by farm IP? Intellectual property. So by uh, that, by that I mean uh, that's a tech term. Yeah, measuring. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we we want we, we want to be measuring how, how we're influencing our, our land and not just saying it. So it's really important to document and, and publish it scientifically. And if we don't get something right, we need to acknowledge that also. That's really important. Got it. Well, thank you so much for being here, Matt Blake. I really appreciate it. Thank you so thank much you. for having us. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.